thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Good evening, and welcome to our uh, second study on the angels, second of four. Uh, last time we had a general introduction about the angels, what they do, and what, what their nature is. We talked about the four choirs of angels. We mentioned, <clears throat> we mentioned them by name, and we explained uh, a little bit about them. Today what we want to do is actually spend more time understanding the role that the angels play in our lives. Effectively, we want to ask ourselves a very simple question. Why do we need a guardian angel? And what is a guardian angel for? The Lord himself is very clear in scripture when he says, Do not scandalize any, one of, the, any of these little ones, for I tell you, they're angels. See the face of my Father in heaven. So. Every believer has a guardian angel. That is the teaching of the church. And according to St. Thomas, every human being has a guardian angel. What for? What do they do? Can we get to heaven without them? Are they necessary? Or are they kind of optional? They're there, kind of hanging somewhere up in midair right now around us maybe with their hands behind their backs, so to speak. They don't have a body, it's just a, a metaphor. And they're looking kindly upon us, floating up in the air. Is that what they do? I mean, what are they for? If we don't understand the role that the garden angels play in our lives, we risk, effectively, to lose the battle that is ahead of us. And that's what I want to explain to you today. Hopefully, by the end of this talk, you'll come to realize the importance of your guardian angel, how important he, he is. Let's start by understanding a very simple fact. And this, by the way, is not easy to understand, really understand. Our nature is fallen. Human nature was created by God good. So we, we should never say, oh, well, when somebody does something, you say, oh, that's human nature. No, it's not. That is fallen human nature. The fall occurred when Adam and Eve were tempted by the devil to rebel against God, and they rebelled. They disobeyed. Once that disobedience took place, something was changed in human nature. A fundamental change happened. The reason why I say it happened in human nature, because this is what we share with them. What we share with Adam and Eve is specifically our human nature. And therefore, if human nature is changed in one place, it's changed everywhere. What happened when they rebelled, disorder entered into human nature. So in our nature, there are these things that make up our nature. I'm, being, I'm simplifying here. It's sort of introduction to human nature for dummies, if you will. But it's sort of a simplified introduction so we can understand how it works. The way God made us, the way God made our nature, 
is that he gave us a will. The will is the faculty in a human being that makes a decision. The part of you that decides is the will. So when you say, I'm going to eat a candy this morning, that's your will speaking. You made that decision. So when, when God created us, if you were to imagine us being a car, if we're a car, no pun intended to a recent movie, by the way, if you were a car, then God wanted the will to be in the driver's seat. The will is driving. And in order to aid the will to make a decision, notice the will makes a decision. All right? Now, in order to make a decision, the will needs information. And this information comes to the will first through the five senses. We as human beings learn through our five senses, through our body. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Those five senses are conduit of information. Information flows through them. It hasn't been processed yet. It's just coming through. Think of it as pipes. Those are the pipes, and information is coming through. Now, that information gets processed by, first, the intellect. The intellect is the part of the human being that takes that information and processes it, thinks about it, and draws some conclusion, and presents them to the will. And the will, then, is inclined to decide one way or the other. But the intellect is not the only one. There is also imagination. The imagination is a very powerful mechanism we have to make decisions. As an example, when President Kennedy said, we will have a man on the moon in 10 years, no five senses could tell us how to get there. None of us walked on the moon. So imagination was a very powerful drive to make this happen. And then the third faculty that plays a big role here is emotions. Emotions. Emotions are like the weather. They come and they go. They're kind of unpredictable sometimes. So keeping things simple, if you had this car, the windows of the car would be your five senses. And inside the car, you have those four passengers. You have the intellect, the imagination, the emotions, and the will. The will is supposed to be driving the car. And the three other guys are supposed to be looking through those windows, the five senses, and then feeding back information to the will in a harmonious way. Meaning, if the intellect says, aha, through the sense of seeing, I'm seeing a fish. You don't want the imagination saying, no, it's not a fish, it's a cow. Because now the will has two sources of information which are contradictory. Fish, cow, fish, cow. Right? And if the decision that the will is making is whether I'm going to eat or not, while killing a fish or killing a cow, there's a big difference. Right? And if on top of that, the emotions now get in and you have turbulence that clogs the whole picture, how could the will decide where to go? So what you want is harmony between those senses, between those faculties, I mean. All right? You want harmony so that the will can make the proper decision. So before the fall, what you had was a harmonious car. The will was in the driver's seat. The three, set, the three faculties were all harmoniously working together in peace. And by the way, when Jesus says peace, that's the peace he's talking about. Okay? Not lack of war, interior peace, interior order of all the faculties according to our nature. Peace between those faculties and everything concurred to the good of man. When disobedience happened, the three faculties looked at each other, and the three of them jumped on the will, bound the will, put him in the back seat, 
And ever since, they fu they're fighting amongst the three of them to decide who's going to drive. All right? That is our fallen nature. That's the situation we are all in. Now, one question you may have is, well, what about baptism? What about the sacraments? What about communion? What about confession? And here, there is a very important point we have to make and realize and hold to. Christ came down from heaven so that we could go to heaven. In other words, Christ extended an invitation to us. He's not going to force us to go to heaven. Therefore, it is never Christ's intent to forcefully take that car, rip it apart, and rebuild it the way it's supposed to, although he would know how to do it, but that's not his intent. It is not his intent. It's not in his plan that by receiving the sacraments, suddenly the will is free, the faculties are ordered and everything is okay. It doesn't happen this way. How do we know this practically? Go out there and tell me in every day's life if you can tell the difference between a guy who goes to Sunday every, uh, to, to every Sunday to Mass and one who doesn't. You can't tell them apart, it looks like. Most of the time. I mean, there are exceptions, but most of the time it's really hard to tell them apart. Why? Because that's not what Christ's intent is. Now, that's an empirical observation. Can Scripture support us in this point? Can Scripture show us that even if we're receiving all the sacraments by themselves, they don't just get us in heaven. It's not an automatic thing. Yes, it's in the Gospel of Luke. During his agony, Jesus, who is the source of all the sacraments, who embodies in himself all the sacraments, Jesus is the Eucharist. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is fullness of grace, fullness of light. He was in the garden and he was praying. He was in agony and he prayed and said to his father, Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass by me. But not my will, but your will. Now what did the father do? He didn't take the cup away. But what did he do? Do you remember? Something remarkable happened. What did the Father do? He sent an angel to strengthen him. He sent an angel to strengthen him. Now, if Christ, who is all perfect, yet in his holy humanity needed strengthening by an angel, who are we to say that all I need is the sacraments? The sacraments are absolutely essential for what? They are absolutely essential for me to do what I have to do to respond to Christ. Without the sacraments, good luck. No matter what effort I do, I won't be able to do anything. Think of it this way. Without the sacraments, I'm in chain. And the chains are so powerful that I cannot break away. So even with all the good intentions I have in the world, objectively, there is something outside of me that bounds me down, binds me down. I can't break. Baptism breaks the chains. And then baptism gives me the strength to stand up. I still have to stand up. Before, I was a paralytic. I couldn't walk. Baptism makes it possible for me to walk. But I still have to walk. You see, I have to decide I want to walk. Confession takes away my blindness. Before confession, I'm blind. Because sin blinds us. Now, confession takes away the blindness I can see. I still have to make that decision. What do I want to see? The Eucharist feeds me so that I can do good works. I still have to decide to do those good works. In other words, the sacraments allow us to practice virtue. And it is the practice of virtue that makes us obey the Ten Commandments or the Beatitudes. And it is our obedience to those commandments that get us into heaven. That's the plan. And it's a good one because God, because God is a good father. Think about your kids. 
if you want to teach your kid mathematics, do you sit down and do your home, his homeworks every day? Would you consider it a good thing to do his homeworks? What do you do? You make it possible for him to do his homeworks. If you're a good parent, you will create the right environment to allow your kid to do his homework. But you will not do the homework for him, would you? If you're asking your kid to do chores, do you do the chores for him? No. But you make it possible for him to make chores. Why? Really, why do you want to go through this nuclear battle in getting your kids to put the dishes in place? Do you enjoy that? For 16 years of their lives, you're going to be telling them, put the dishes away. And for 16 years of their lives, it's going to be better. Are you enjoying this? Are you doing it because you have nothing else to do? Wouldn't it be a lot easier to do it yourself and be done with it? Yeah, it would be, wouldn't it? But you're not being a loving parent. Because you're not teaching them something you know they'll need when they grow up. God is like that. Because the family mirrors the love of God. So, it is the practice of virtue. You see, most of us, or many people who go to hell, don't go to hell on theological basis. They go to hell on moral basis. I believe in everything the Catholic Church teaches but contraception. The Church teaches very, very clearly, you use contraception, you're objectively in a state of moral sin. That means, objectively, that you're holding in your hand a one-way ticket to hell. That's what you're doing. Whether you feel good about it or not, whether you agree with it or not, whether you think differently or not changes nothing of the objective reality that you put yourself into. You're holding a one-way ticket to hell. That's called objective reality. The church says you have to come to Sunday to Mass every Sunday. Not receive communion, come to Mass. Difference. Well, you know, I'll go to Mass every Tuesday. It's the same thing. Nope, it's not. When you make that decision, objectively, you're holding in your hand the one-way ticket to hell. That's what you're doing. It's that simple. Why? Because by that, those decisions, you've effectively told God, I don't want to be in your church. The church you died for, the church you suffered for, the church you instituted on the cross, I don't want to be part, I don't want to be part of it. And Christ will say, fine. That's your decision. If you're not part of my church on earth, you will not be part of my church in heaven. It's that simple. Take it back to your family. Your kid says, Mom, he's 12. I'm going to do drugs. Do you say, Oh, well, you know, son, to each his own. We're different, but we have to accept our differences. It's okay. Go ahead. Do you say that? If you say that, you're being a selfish parent. In fact, you have relinquished being a parent. Well, God has placed in the family a lesson that teaches us about Him. And all the decisions we took in our family, He's taking. In His family. Because He has only one family. He's a father of one family. Christ has one bride. One. Not two, not five, not twenty. What would you think of a man who had twenty brides? Christ has one. One bride. And he has children who are part of this family. And they have to obey and grow in the rule that he put for them because it's a rule of life. So the first thing we need to understand is that because of that disorder in us, we are weak. We are weak. And the interesting thing is that just as Lucifer, we tend to rebel and say, no, we're not weak. Let me be more specific. Even when we say we're weak, there's a part of us saying we're not. There is a part in us that fundamentally rejects the notion that we can be weak. 
even when we admit to it, there's still a part in us rejecting it. That is the makeup of that broken, of that fallen nature, is to rebel. So until we take stock of the fact that we are really weak, truly weak, and until we understand who the enemy is that we're fighting, that we have to put a fight to get to heaven, we're not going to make any progress. So the first step that I just talked about is our weakness. Now, let me talk a little bit about the second aspect, which is the enemy. Who is the enemy? We have three enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is our enemy because, not because the world is fundamentally evil. That's not true. Okay? The world is not fundamentally evil. The world is good. Why? Because God created it. God created all this universe. Everything was created by God. And he said, it's good. It's actually very good. But the, the world can become our enemy when that good becomes the enemy of the best. Heaven. When our view becomes completely horizontal. Let me give you a very clear example. For those of you who have children, I think that, that this one will strike home. As parents, our first duty is to lead our children to heaven. That's our first duty. Therefore, our, as parents, our duty is not, it is not to make sure that our kids stay alive on this earth at all cost. It isn't. That is not logical. If a child is sick, and if healing him from the sickness will cause him to go to hell, I don't want him to be healed. I would rather, rather he dies and goes to heaven. But if we are worldly, then our attachment to our children will be worldly. We become too attached to this life, which is nothing more than a pilgrimage. We're passing by. This is not home. But if we are worldly, not so much in our thoughts and in our philosophy, in our theology, no, in our moral life, in how we live life, what is important to us, then we want our children to live and 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 live. At what cost? Now, don't get me wrong, and I'm not wishing for anybody to die. I'm just trying to explain that we have to put things in perspective. Our goal is to get to heaven, and we want to pray for our children to make it to heaven, and we want to make sure that they do. So therefore, we need to look at everything the Lord sends us with, with the eyes of wisdom. Is this sickness for the good of this person or not? It would be like every time somebody is sick, we immediately pray for healing. We never stop to think, well, God, what is your will in this business? What, is, what do you want for this person? What is good for him? Good in the ultimate sense, in the sense of heaven or hell. That's when the world is tying us down because we become too attached to this world. The second is the flesh. I don't think I have to paint a picture here. Okay? For men, I only have one word for you. Hair. It's a big deal if a man is losing his hair. Reflect on that because this, is, this shows you how much we love our flesh. How much we attach to it. When, if you think about it, what is hair? What is it? I mean, what, what is it? But we, for a, because of our disordered nature where emotions take over reason and intellect, suddenly, if we're losing our hair, it's a... It's an impact on self-esteem. Now, I am not putting this problem down. This is a serious problem. I'm not, I don't want you to think I am making fun of men. Who, I, no, not at all. I am just indicating that here is one simple, very simple example about hair for men. Now, let's talk about hair for women. I used to work for Bell Canada when I was in Canada. It was my part-time job. And I worked in this building which was for customer support. And as Bell Canada would have it, it's in Canada, of course, Bell Canada, my phone. Customer support was 99% uh, staffed by women. My office was on the 10th floor. 
And I am, I'm not a, a, a morning person, so I barely have time to get up, get dressed, and get to work on time. I haven't had breakfast yet. And I step in with this elevator that contains 30 people. And of course, it's going to stop at every floor. And here I am standing with 29 women, and every one of them has probably three different perfumes on her. I quit. After two months, I couldn't take it. Reflect on that. Notice how we tend to divide our life between going to church, praying to God, and then everything else. Where we don't even think whether the importance we give our appearance is right. We have to give importance to appearance. This is important because it's an act of charity towards others. If you're receiving people, you're the one standing there and then you're, you know, you stink like a skunk. You just don't want to do that. That's not charitable. It's not the right thing to do. And you're not giving glory to God because the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So there is a need to ha look decent. But to what extent do we have to take that? Two simple examples about the flesh. Let's talk about the third, the devil. The first thing that the devil wants you to believe, the first thing he wants you to believe, is that he does not if you believe that the devil does not exist, he had it made with you. He will not bother you. He leaves you alone. You're like the frog cooking in slow water. He'll bore you to death in hell because you don't believe he exists. Why? Because if you don't think the devil exists, are you going to pay any attention to him? No. You're like a city with the doors completely open for the enemy to come and do whatever they want. Why? Because the city doesn't believe that the enemy exists. So that's one extreme. If you can't get that, then his other extreme is he wants you to believe he's all-powerful. And then everything that happens to you happens because of him. Either he'll control you, or he will make you believe he doesn't exist. Let's talk about how the devil typically tempts people. Now, let's, say what, let's, make, let's make sure we understand what the devil can and cannot do. First of all, the devil is a creature. Him compared to God, he's absolutely nothing. Right? There's no comparison between the two. He's a creature. He's maintaining existence by the love of God. That's what maintains him in existence. Because in himself, he doesn't have subsistent being. He doesn't exist by himself. God maintains him in existence just like everybody else. The devil cannot read your mind. He doesn't have that power. Angels cannot read your mind either. They don't have that power. That comes from the principle that God said, your will is supreme. You have free will. That's what it means. They cannot subvert your will. They cannot go in and then rewire your will. He can't do that. He cannot read your mind. The devil cannot predict the future. The devil cannot create things out of nothing. Those are God's prerogative. The devil doesn't completely understand you. He cannot completely read your heart. That's the prerogative of the Holy Spirit. He can't do any of those things. But you know what? He doesn't need to. Why? Because we're so predictable. Just like kids. Kid is crying. Kid's been crying for five minutes. Kid forgot why he's crying. Kid sees lollipop. Kid stops crying. This kid can be American, Italian, Chinese, Japanese, you name it, and maybe even Martian. Lollipop, they stop crying. Predictable. We're predictable. He doesn't need fancy schmancy stuff to figure out how he can tempt us. Now remember those senses and the three faculties I told you about? The five senses and then imagination, intellect, and emotions? The way typically the devil will tempt you is through the emotions by way of the imagination. Let me explain. Imagination is the most angelic faculty in us. It is the most angelic-like faculty. In, in, in I need to be a little bit more careful. Imagination is the faculty that the angels will use to provoke in us thoughts. That's the one they, 
they, they, they usually favor. So, if you've stuffed your imaginations with horror movies, and if you allow your kids to watch whatever without control, without looking at a movie and wondering if this particular creature that is in the movie can be used by the devil later, if you're not exercising control over the imagination, or as we call it, if you're not cultivating the imagination, you're leaving it wide open. Okay? And, and so what the devil will typically do is provoke in you ideas that stem from the background of the imagination, and he will excite your emotions. And that's how he tempts us. Either provoking anxiety, or provoking desires, or putting in us thoughts that we don't know where they came from and we think they're ours, because we don't discern the different voices in us. We have not practiced that discipline. We think every thought coming on my mind is mine. Well, we're, we're like sitting ducks for him. Because he, can, he has access to your emotions. You need to understand that. The devil has complete access to your emotions. Yes. No. Even without the imagination. He just excites your emotions. You can, he can put you in a state and you're wondering, why am I in that state? He excites you. Why? Because you accept it. You remember when I said the emotions are one conduit for the will to make a decision? Being of the will is weak. Right? I get up and I'm excited today. Oh, this must be a great day. Let me go to Vegas. Notice how we just made a decision based on how I feel. But where did this feeling come from? What was different between today and yesterday? Factually, nothing. But I just feel good. Where is that feeling coming from? We never stop to even question that. Because we think, of course, it's just only me. You see, practically, we don't believe in the devil and we won't believe in angels. Because when things happen in us, we always assume, presumptuously, just me. The guardian angel, on the other hand, will use your intellect. The guardian angel will use your intellect. And I'll explain how in a minute. But those are the three enemies you're up to. Now, considering the wretched situation we're in, do you think you have a fighting chance against those two enemies on your own? Do you think you can make it on your own? If you sit down and you look at the situation like a general would, here's the armies of the enemy, and here's me, you would conclude, I need help. I need help. And God, in his infinite wisdom and mercy, foresaw that, and he gives us the help we need. First, through the church. First, through the church. Because the church teaches the truth. I cannot tell you how much You'll be at peace once you accept that. And you're willing to abide by the church. And neither will you say, oh, well, how could this council set this and that and the other? Or neither will you say, oh, well, I accept this from the church, but not that. If you lovingly accept your church as your mother, that's the first source of your peace. And then you practice, you spend your time, instead of arguing over what the church teaches, which is futile anyhow, because we have no control over it, you start spending your time over, okay, how do I improve myself? Lord, let me show I love you. Okay, I'm going to go to Sunday Mass. I'm going to be more reverent. Then I'm going to practice confession more than I usually do. If I, you're, whatever, my advice to you is that whatever confession you're doing right now, double it. If you're going once every year, go twice. If you're going once every six months, go once every three months. And make, uh, make put it on your calendar. Show the Lord you're serious about that. So you use the sacraments, and you use them effectively. But still, you're, ex you're exposed. Now, in Matthew chapter 12, chapter 11, verse 20, uh, 12, Matthew 11, 12, we read the following. It's a really surprising statement from our Lord. It says this. Yeah, if I start reading from verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, the Lord says something rather startling. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And men of violence take it by force. Let me read it to you again. From the, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And men of violence take it by force. What does he mean? 
What does it mean that the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and men of violence take it by force? Well, hopefully the first thing it will mean is that you will stop thinking that getting into heaven is easier than getting into Harvard. Oh, well, such and such was a good person. He's in heaven. Imagine, I just want you to imagine that every time, every time you see a person whom you consider good, you say, oh, such and such is a good person. He's in Harvard. How does that sound? How would that sound to, if you heard somebody says, oh, look, this person is such a good person, he must be in Harvard. What would you think? So how come we accept the fact that when we judge, when we judge a person good, when the Lord said to the rich man, the rich man came to him and said, good master, and the Lord turned around and said, who do you call good? Only God is good. Only God is good. And that's where he said, for you who are evil, if your son asks you for food, you don't give him for a fish, you don't give him a stone, how much more your Father in heaven will give you what you need? You who are evil. And yet here we are bestowing upon each other the diploma of goodness. It's scary. Why is it scary? Why am I why does it upset me? Why is it one of my pet peeves? I'll tell you why. Because to me it's a fundamental lack of charity. You see, if somebody's in heaven do I have to pray for him? No. That's it. I wash my hands. He's in heaven. What spiritual duty do I have towards him? Zero. None. So please, let us stop canonizing people in heaven. And take stock of this reality. You've got to take the kingdom of heaven by force. And you have to be violent. What does that mean? Stand up there and then start ranting and raving? Or we go and, and, and participate in wrestling? Is that what God has in mind when he says, men of violence? No. It is in relationship to what I described to you. You got your will tied up in the back. You got the three faculties going crazy. What is the job you have to do? What is the job you have to do? You have to strengthen your will. Right? You have to put the will back in control. You have to qu quiet down your faculties. You have to purify them. You have to align them with the will and God's will in order for you to become what God wants you to be. You think this is going to be easy? I mean, even if we didn't have the world and the devil to deal with, even if we didn't have those two to deal with, we're already up. Why? Because of the habit in us. We have those habitual tendencies. And unless we are doing violence to ourselves, and by this violence, I really mean conversion. A change. Conversion is never easy. Real conversion is not easy. You've got to work at it. You have to change your ways constantly. That's the violence the Lord is speaking of. That means you must have a will that will not relent. But if the will is weak, how is it that it's going to not relent? Of course it will relent. You understand? Our weakness is such that on our own, we just can't stand on our two feet. We need the help of someone. Now this is one quotation I give you. St. Paul in Acts chapter 12, verse 24, says about himself, that he pummels his body. He subdues it. Why? Because he knows that he's in conflict with his, um, with his uh, disordered tendencies. And he has to break them in control. He has to work on himself so that he can acquire those virtues. So if you're wondering, why am I not making progress? Why isn't my spiritual life so slack. Why is it that I don't have a sense of peace? Well, because there's work to be done and it needs to be done. And we're not doing it. Likewise, in the second letter to Timothy, chapter 4, St. Paul says at the end of his life, using a, a metaphor of sports, I have ran the race. I have fought the fight. He says it with such peace because he knows he did everything he could. That's what is expected of us. 
But how could it be expected that when we have those three faculties fighting among each other, like there is no tomorrow? Here's where our guardian angel comes in the picture. So what do they do for us? They do five things. But I'll tell you right away, they will not do any one of them unless you're asking them. Because they completely respect your free will. Unless you explicitly ask your guardian angel for help in those five areas, he will not help. He will respect your, your free will because an angel is very humble. And in his humility, he will not impose himself. The first one, strengthen your will. He will strengthen your will. That's where he helps us. As I gave you the example in Luke, where an angel was sent to strengthen the will of Christ. And that's what he did. He will do the same thing for us. In moments of temptation, in difficult moments, your guardian angel is right there strengthening your will. People often say when someone goes through a major crisis, they're like, how did you go through it? He says, well, you know, I got the grace from, of God. Yeah, how? He's got an angel. That's the first thing you got an angel does for you. The second, the second thing is that he illuminates your intellect. He illuminates your intellect. He shines a strong light of grace on your intellect for you to understand something. You know, I am sure every one of you must have had a moment, a defining moment in your life where you went, whoa, or aha, or I never saw that before. And again, in our presumption and pride, we ascribe this to whom? Mini-me. I do it. I did it. There's just me and mini-me. Nobody else is around me. This is because we're blind, you see. We're blind to the spiritual realities. Effectively, St. Thomas teaches us that every grace God gives you comes to you through God the Father, to God the Son, to Our Lady, to the Church, to God an angel, to you. Everything flows through God an angel. Everything. So he will strengthen, he will enlighten your intellect. The third thing that he does for you is strengthen your memory. We forget, we forget, we forget, we forget, we forget. Uh, most people think that the devil will, will lead them to hell by stuffing their minds with ideas. But the reality is that the devil will lead them to hell by taking things away from them, making them forget. Simple example. How many of you went to Mass on Sunday, heard a homily, which was really good, and on Tuesday, you can't even begin to remember what the homily was all about? Happened to anybody here? Do you think it's just because of you and your poor memory? The devil is at work. His work is to make you forget what you've learned. The fourth way is a very interesting way, which I recommend heartily. I've already done that a couple of times just um, to show you what the guardian angel will do in practice. Because the first three ways, unless you are very well in tune with yourself and you know your weaknesses, you will not recognize you, the work of your guardian angel, either in, in strengthening your will, or illuminating your intellect, or strengthening your memory. Until you get to a point where you recognize how wretched you are, those three will be done sort of invisibly. But keep at it. Keep praying. Keep your personal prayer up, and your devotion to your angel up, and those things will start to clarify. The fourth, however, is very practical. The angel can help you with the exercise of virtue. He can help you with the exercise of virtue. Oftentimes, you heard me say, if you want to know what your God and angel can do for you, ask him for a parking space. You're going to park somewhere, ask your God and angel for a parking space. And I think those of you who took me on my word has, have experienced this firsthand, that your God and angel, if you ask him, will have a parking space ready for you. But that is just sort of the beginning. My intention is not for you to just stay there. Let's say, I'll actually give you two real examples of what I'm talking about. There is a man who was having problems with little lies. Every time he told a story, he will actually beautify it, makes it look beautiful. And he then asked his guardian angel to help him. He said, guardian angel, every time you see me or hear me starting to twist 
the truth, basically tell a lie, make me bite my tongue. And so here he was, starting to tell this story, starting to make it look better than it was, and he goes, uh. Five minutes later, uh. And after a couple of days, he goes, got an angel, okay, okay, I get the message, I give up, I give up. I take my word away. Which I think was foolish on his part, but that's what he did. Another man has a problem with eating, overeating. He told his guardian angel, guardian angel, I give you permission, I give you permission. Because if you don't give your guardian angel permission, he's not going to overstep the boundary. I give you permission to make me stop eat when I ate enough. And so he'd be there, and he would be eating, and here this nice piece of cake, and he takes a piece and uh, falls on his clothes. Tries to take one, another um, cup of, of wine more than he should, uh, falls on him. He effectively was stopped. Your God and angel has control over material things. He can help you. Ask him. I'll tell you two stories related to this. There is a mother who told her two daughters... She told them the garden angel prayer, and she told them, whenever you're in trouble, ask your garden angel for help. He will help you. And this mother was a single mother, and she had her one daughter who was, I think, uh, six years old, another was four years old, and she had to go to work. And while they were in the apartment, the building caught on fire, and they were on the sixth floor of, a, of that building. And the door's locked. They can't get out. So the, the, the older sister told the younger sister, we're going to open the window, we're going to say the garden angel prayer, and I'm going to jump. And then, once I'm down, I'll, I'll tell you, and you jump too. So they said their prayer, and she jumped. And the people standing down there, of course, screamed of, of horror, saying her jumping. And then, to their amazement, they saw her slow down, and then stand on her feet. And then, look, her sister says, everything's okay, you can jump too. And her sister jumped, and stood with her, right next to her. Now, if you think I'm making up the story, about four ye three days ago, in, on CNN, there was a report of an 11-year-old boy, no, a 4-year-old boy, not 11, 4-year-old boy, on the 11th story of a building, and he fell from, through the window. 11th floor, straight. He hit a metal awning and bowed it on the cement. He had a cracked skull and a broken hand. And he was talking. And the doctor said, I can only ascribe it to luck. Which is another way of saying, I have not the faintest idea how he survived. Garden angels. That's what they do. You give them permission to help you, they will. The last way through which your garden angel can help you, remember when I said that the senses five senses and add the tongue to it are the ways through which information enters our our soul well good information and bad information it all enters through that okay you can make your garden angel you can commit yourself to your garden angel body and soul what that means is that you're telling your garden angel I am now committing to you my five senses and my tongue. Guard my five senses. Do not permit me to see, to smell, to hear, to taste, to touch that which is not going to lead me to God. I commit to you my soul, meaning my imagination. I want you to help me protect my imagination, clear it from all the junk that I put in it, make all these things go away, and only allow me to bring up in my imagination those good images that will help me go to heaven. My intellect, order it, my will, and my memory. I give all of that to you. I put all of that under your guardianship. And I want you to take care of it. This is what your guardian angel can do for you. So I recommend starting today. When you go home, um, if you don't have it, I can bring it next week. But if you, can, if you have internet access, go to Google and enter Novena to Guardian Angel. Novena to Guardian Angel. And it'll be the third link down from the, the result page. Click on it, and there'll be a Novena to the Guardian Angel. Say that Novena for nine days as a sign of devotion 
to your guardian angel. N-O-V-E-N-A. Novena comes from the Latin, uh, the word in Latin that means nine. So that's a prayer that is set for nine consecutive days. And if you forget to say it one day, start over. Okay? Start over. Say this novena and be devoted to your guardian angel. And you will see how he will take charge of you. And as the psalm says, Psalm 118, if I'm not mistaken, or 108, God commanded his angels to take charge of you lest you hit a stone and you fall. That's what it means. But God gave you free will, and it's up to you. It's up to you to commit yourself to your guardian angel. What I want to do next week is show you in the book of Tobit how this took place through the archangel Raphael. And the week after, I'm going to go through a number of stories of angels and saints. How angels in, intervene in the lives of many, many saints. So that you can have a more uh, concrete idea of their participation in your life. The last thing I'll say is that angels are very important for us in the book of Revelation because they are participating in this drama that started from the fall, which was introduced through one of them, Satan. And so they have a stake into this. We are in it together. And always remember the words of Isaiah. There are more on our side than against us. Always remember this. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.